This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. You will come over it, but you will never forget it. You live with it, and you go dying with it, and you never forget. Solomon Cool. Valeria interviews David Tabatsky. He is the author of The Boy Behind the Door, How Solomon Cool Escaped the Nazis, and many other titles. David is a writer, editor, and performing artist based in New York City. His memoir, American Misfit, was released in 2017. He is the co-author of several books about cancer, including Rx for Hope, Reimagining Women's Cancers, and Reimagining Men's Cancers, the cancer book 101 Stories of Courage, Support, and Love, and the author of Write for Life, Communicating Your Way Through Cancer. He co-authored The Intelligent Divorce, The Right Choice, Your Family's Guide to Healthy Eating, Modern Fitness and Saving Money, and was consulting editor for Marlo Thomas and her New York Times bestseller, The Right Words at the Right Time. Volume 2, Your Turn. David has performed as an actor, clown, and juggler at Lincoln Center, Radio City Music Hall, the Beacon Theater, and throughout the United States and Europe. Most notably at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where the stage wrote... He is a supremely skillful performer and fine actor, reaching levels no other comics have matched at this fringe. Meet David at tabaski.com and theboybehindthedoor.org. Here's the interview with David Tabatsky. In your own words, who is David Tabaski today? Well, I am really just a messenger for these other stories at this, in this uh, context, um, telling the story of Solomon Cool in The Boy Behind the Door is really not about me. I think there's an interesting sidelight, perhaps, in how I came to write it, but really that's not the point. You know, it's not about me. There has to be a name, uh, an author that goes with books um, 99% of the time, but um, it's really not about the author and it shouldn't be. I I mean, certainly I do welcome the acknowledgement and it doesn't go over me. Um, I do appreciate um, the feedback that I've received from people and, you know, favorable feedback and, and all of that. But that's kind of not so much the point in in this case. Um, It's really about trying to share this story and, you know, there's a, a phrase where people say, oh, it's unthinkable what happened in the Holocaust. But it, it must be thinkable. It cannot, we can't just 
cast it off and, and put it into a pile of history and say, oh, it was unthinkable because it, it was absolutely thinkable. It all really it all really happened. And we must insist that people do think of it and remember it and never forget it and put the lessons of it to good use because we're living, especially now in a time when people like to just, you know, look at something and then switch their phone to something else and not think about it anymore. And I, I liked it or I responded to it and that's all I have to do. Well, that's a real sad thing and that's very dangerous too about what happens to our society. So if you look at the explosion of anti-Semitism around the world, it's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah, there's a thread. There's a thread historically that goes through all of it and obviously it, it was a driving force of the Holocaust, but it's still happening um, in lots of ways and, and on much lower levels, of course. Um, mm. But there are Jewish children getting beaten up every single day in schools and playgrounds and after school programs all over the country and not just in, my, in the United States. It's all it's all all over. In the end of the book, which is, um, wow, it's the title. I managed to have that for the title of this episode, where he says, you come over it, but you'll never forget it. You will live with it and you will go dying with it and you will never forget it. That is so true. What uh, the message for me when I read the passage, what he says here is a trauma. So going through a lot of trauma myself, what I managed to do and the lessons that I have learned was to make my life as positive as possible. A healing life, not just healing as an event, as a treatment for in a period of time, but my entire life to become this very positive, open space that is healing in itself. When I I have to go back to um, the title of the book because when I saw the title, The Boy Behind the Door, it came to me as a positive thing. It was it put a smile on my face. And I was wondering why, because I know it's not an entirely positive story. So, and you, we're talking off record for a moment about this. So talk to me about the title and the door, what you said, just said off record kind of made sense to me about the door and that represents possibilities. Well, yeah, doors represent possibilities. They also represent things that are foreboding. We don't know what's on the other side. Or, you know, in the old game shows, there were people who'd be like, you know, you answer a few questions, then you have to pick what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. But it's basically, you know, did you get a refrigerator, a, you know, a trip to the beach, or, you know, or some silly thing that was behind the last door? So, you know, I mean, those are all pretty, <laughs> those are pretty harmless um, you know, frivolities. Um, but in real life, um, a lot of times the door is the difference between life and death. And in this case, it literally was for Solomon Cool on the day that um, his final family members were taken away. And he was ended up being protected by hiding behind the door of his bedroom. And the Nazi soldiers didn't see him. Um, and so, yeah, from there, he, you know, he managed to survive, but there were always the foreboding things with the door. I mean, he was taken 
away when he was 16 by on his birthday when when they came and knocked on the door and those heavy fists beating on the door um, again, it's another door. There's the doors where he had to hide when he was with the Christian families. There's, you know, the door of the hospital room that he was in where soldiers came by and luckily didn't realize he was Jewish. I mean, the doors kind of literally play a role in this particular story, but I think they do metaphorically or symbolically for many of us in our lives at various moments. Um, and he talked about survivorship and healing. You know, there's a big psychological thing that goes with the Holocaust called survivor's guilt, which, which is common to many, many hundreds of thousands of people, millions, in fact, who, who did end up surviving and none of their families did or very few. And, and obviously in Saul's case, he was the only one from his family, from his two parents and his three siblings were, were all murdered in the concentration camp. So he lived his life with that. He was aware of it. He made do. He made the best he could. He and his wife, Nettie, really did live a lovely, generally positive life. I, you know, when I met them, they were they were just so sweet and, and, and as can be and and, and gentle and um, not bitter, but obviously I could see, it wasn't hard to see him, especially how broken he was. I don't know all the details of Nettie's life and her family, um, so I don't know if she lost as many people as Saul. I, it just didn't seem, at the moment I did, in the, when I was there, um, to meet him and research all of this, I, I didn't ask because it was really all focused about Saul, and I didn't feel like I wanted to push for more, you know, yeah, than I, yes. than I did. it was all, it was a lot as it was, but Saul, you know, you could feel the weight of it. Even as an old man, he still carried that with him. And, you know, he, he was very happy about his children, his grandchildren. And that's why he ultimately decided that he wanted me to write the book to pass it on to them, if no one else, because he was a pretty shy private person um but yeah you 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 carry that burden and i think everyone deals with trauma differently it obviously depends what the trauma is and there it's not a contest to compare one trauma to another i think that's a that's a kind of a pointless thing to do but again it's perspective and i and i know and how how it unfolded and what you were surrounded by and um but as you said, there were also some very positive things that we can take from his experience. I mean, just the, the families that protected him at great risk to the home. They could have all been killed if, if they had been found out. And there were many, there were many non-Jewish families in Europe that did hide Jewish people of all ages. And when they were found, they were all murdered. So that was, that, that was a very common thing to happen. Um, and so right. that's a you know, very positive lesson to learn, especially for young people when they read this book, I hope, that they can see that there is power in taking action and power in doing the right thing. Um, and, and, and people can choose to do the wrong thing, to do nothing, or to do the right thing. And, and so there's, there's a lot to take from it.
it's almost like we see tragedies as being this horrible experience with no other side. But there is that, perhaps I cannot use the word beautiful, but there's something beautiful about it when humans come together, regardless of their backgrounds, and they just, they help each other. And there's just like the humanness. There's just humans there. Seems like everything else disappears, right, David? Right. There's the other side. There's the, there's the, maybe the flip side of evil. Yeah. Obviously, the, the Holocaust is shrouded in, in perhaps the worst evil in history, but it's also, there are glimmers of beauty and there are moments of hope. And, um, and so that does offer it. But I, I think, yeah, the overall, the overall context is not, um, not so beautiful, but right now, like yeah. you said, there are, mo- there are moments, there's, there, there's salvation among the ruins. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think somewhere Saul found that in himself that he was even able to survive years later and continue and to have a functioning life. Other people didn't. They were they were so broken by it they could never fully function again. Yeah, I wanted to ask you the question about when you met him. Actually, before that, because now I have too many questions <laughs> that's going ahead. But how did you come across? His story, how did you meet him? I think the Uh-oh. audience would like to know that. Yeah, well, this is kind of interesting. There was a, a businessman, his name is Sandy, who lived in Scarsdale, New York, which is a suburb of, of New York City. And it's a pretty wealthy, upper, kind of basically upper middle class, upper class suburb. A lot of Jews there. A lot of Jews are like involved in their synagogues. And, and at the time after the war, when Israel became a state in 1948, these people were also part of supporting that. And not that they were necessarily physically there, but they were like either sending money and, you know, doing other things to support the founding of the state of Israel. That was pr- fairly common um, among American Jewry. Um, and so Sandy was part of that. And he had, I think Sandy was born in like, Ah, he was an adult man by then. So um, I, I don't remember. I, I don't know. I can't remember if he had served in the army in the, in the, you know, in the service during World War II or not. But um, anyway, in, 19, in early 1960s, Sandy and his wife went on vacation to Aruba, which is um, a former Dutch colony in the Caribbean. And Saul and Nettie came from Amsterdam, went to Aruba because it was a common vacation spot for Dutch people because it was a Dutch colony. So, you know, some people there, they spoke Dutch and there were certain customs that had filtered their way through there. So it was a comfortable, um, you know, uh, vacation spot for a lot of people from the Netherlands. So one day, Saul and Sandy, just coincidentally, they're both standing in the ocean and just a few feet apart from each other. And they just started chatting. Well, what's, what's your history? Where do you come from? Well, I'm from New York. I'm from Amsterdam. What were you doing during the war? Oh, I was doing this. I was, oh my God, I'm a Holocaust survivor. So Sandy was completely shocked because he literally had never met one before or not one that was his peer. You know? He might've met someone who was much older and, but that's, there's a, there was a, a gap there. So here's, here's a man who reminded him of himself or it could be, you know, and, and um, so they got to talking and, and uh, Saul shared some of his story and was reticent to go too far. 
But anyway, they they struck up a friendship, and they over the next years, um, Sandy and Saul and their wives would meet again in Aruba or on some other vacations. And Sandy, they went to Amsterdam and visited. Um, I don't think Saul ever came here. I don't even know if they had the money to afford it. But um, anyway, um, Saul always was encouraging Sandy. I mean, Sandy was always encouraging Saul to write a book. Tell your story. Tell your story. And, And Saul was very reticent. He described to me, like, I didn't, I had no interest in doing that. And then finally, over the years, Sandy convinced him that you need to tell the story. If for no one else, tell it for you, put it in writing and tell it for your children and your grandchildren. And I guess Nettie, his wife, kind of convinced him. And then Sandy knew a literary agent here in New York City who I had worked with on a project or two. And um, she contacted me. And Sandy hired me to, you know, do whatever was necessary to create this book. Um, and so he, you know, he he uh, supported me to go. He, you know, sponsored me to go to Amsterdam, and I spent about a week there. And I visited with them every day. I we walked around Amsterdam. Saul showed me like where he went to elementary school the windows where he had, they're still there where he, the low windows on the first floor where he and a couple of other students had to crawl out the windows and escape when the Nazis were marching up the hallway of their school and the apartment buildings where they hid out. And then his cousin's place where he had to hide and where his family was. And, and then the, maybe the most important in a way was the Jewish theater, which was a big, big institution at the time. It was a big, obviously a very large Jewish population in Amsterdam um, at that time. And the Jewish theater was legendary. And that's the place that it was obviously closed fairly soon after the German occupation. And, you know, one by one, different rights were taken away. The Jewish theater was closed and Jews could not go here. They could not go there. They couldn't ride on the, on the street cars. They couldn't, you know, he couldn't, Jewish kids couldn't ride their bikes out anywhere. So, you know, those are things that he grew up with as a teenager. And that's where, though, the Nazis used the Jewish theater as a collection point, a deportation center. They were rounded up. The adults were brought there. And eventually they were then put on trains to go to various concentration camps. Um, and in Holland, in Germany, in Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, you know, all different places. And um, the kids were taken across the street into the creche, which is basically kind of a kindergarten, a little nursery kindergarten school for children, babies all the way through. And Saul, who was already not a kid anymore, I mean, he was a kid, but not a kid, wasn't a child. Um, but he was physically small. So here again, there's a little bit of luck. We're talking uh, about- we'll talk about luck in the moment. Yeah, I have a question. <laughs> that's the first, that's in a way, that was the first bit of significant luck that happened in the midst of awfulness that was going on around him was that um, there was a man named Walter Susskind, um, as a German man who was there in Amsterdam to help as many Jewish kids as he could. 
and that's what he kind of specialized in. And so he took Saul aside and he said, well, you don't look your age. Let's use that. Or I'm going to ship you across the street. Like as if you're still a child. And, uh, and, and, uh, but then he was, he was separated, um, from the adults and, and, and taken there. Um, and so that's where he managed to survive for quite a while was because the nurses protected him and kind of hid him out and, 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 uh, and all convinced, you know, the German soldiers who would check and, you know, do their rounds that, that he was younger than he was and that he had to stay there. And that lasted for a time until eventually they couldn't, you know, they couldn't hide him or protect him anymore. And he had to, he had to go out on his own. Um, and so when I was there with Saul, he showed me, you know, what the building that had been the theater. Now it's actually being renovated. It's going to, they're finally turning it into a museum. Um, and, um, and the, and the crash across the street and the streetcar and the whole thing. Um, and I was there recently in the, in the early in this fall and kind of took myself back on the same tour through it. It's pretty powerful to think of all these years later. It's still, still very real. Um, yeah. And the whole Jewish quarter of the city where that was, um, there are obviously a lot of, uh, landmarks and, and, uh, you, you know, things that note where things happened, um, you know, on particular streets. So the, the history is still left alive in, in that part of the city. As I listen to you, I can even hear the sound of your voice when you, you talk about the going back and, um, even though you're not part of that, um, you're not a Holocaust survivor. It just um, takes over our minds, doesn't it? Embodies. It's uh, oh yeah. It's I very mean, I, powerful. I grew up. I grew up um, in a Jewish home, and my father was a cantor, so he was essentially a professional Jew as well as yeah. a personally committed Jew. And so I grew up learning about that stuff from a relatively young age, and and oh, and then you one day if you're a little child and you're you know, when you stand next to an adult, so their arms are at your eye level. You're all standing because you're little, you know, you're four, yeah. five years old, and you see numbers tattooed onto their arm. And, and you're like, what's that? Because you don't have any idea. You're little. You're like, what I said, like four or five years old, you see something. You don't, you don't, you don't know tactfulness or whether it's appropriate to say anything. It's just like, what's that? Why do you have numbers on your arm? And then when you then then you know there's some sort of child appropriate explanation, and even though it's you know very uh, toned down, it still makes an impact. Still know that something's not right. It's like I look at all these other arms; nobody else has tattoos on their arm, so there must be something wrong. You know why they why they you know with that. You know you can just feel it. Even I remember kind of vaguely remember that kind of feeling the weight of it it's like something's just what's wrong with this picture kind of thing and as i got yeah. older i, I certainly mm -hmm. yeah. uh, a lot and, and then you know it's weird i mean as a jewish kid you know growing up in that and it's kind of weird because it is the kind of if, if there's any sort of tribal identification with your with your culture and and what came before there's a legacy 
of the Holocaust. It's just looming there. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. And, and, and if you do, that's highly naive and irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, you do it, you learn more about it as you get older. And, and so by the time I was in high school, you know, you're learning, you know, the real nitty gritty, you know, you're seeing the documentary films and, uh, it, it, it um, makes a pretty huge imprint. So but by, by the time I, you know, had my own association with the, with, with Germany and had been there and then, and then going to, uh, Amsterdam to meet Saul, it was, um, it felt like the right thing for me to be doing. It just felt like, I, this is, I should be doing this. I should, at least for part of my life, I should be committed to doing what I can to educate um, people in another small way about what happened through, through Saul's story. Right. Um, and so yeah. that's why I also designed it intentionally for young readers in the style that it's written you know, with, with short chapters that are easy to read, simple language, um, a dialogue that reflects the real age of, of Saul at the time, because the story starts when he's a week before uh, his bar mitzvah, and he's, you know, 12 turning 13 years old. So, well, this is the kind of book that 10, 11, 12-year-old kids can read up until they're, you know, all the way through, you know, 15, 16, 18, because he, the book trails him all the way through until he's 18, um, the end of the war, basically that five-year period from 1940 to 1945. So he basically goes from 13 to 18. Um, and, you know, especially for boys in that age range, books are not the most attractive thing. <laughs> yeah, to be doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And certainly not now. And, and, you know, in 2022, when, when kids are basically getting all their information, or not all, but getting so much of it on their phones, um, reading is more challenged. You know, they, they, read, they read an Instagram post, but that's, that's nothing compared to reading a whole book. So you got to kind of meet them where they are. And obviously it's not a book that's written from one text to another because texting didn't exist in that time. And you have to be as authentic as possible to the time period and to the real events and facts of, uh, of the, uh, the time, which I was, I mean, there was a lot of intense research went in to make sure that it was exact and correct. Um, but you want to make it readable. You want to invite them to read the story and not just the first couple chapters and then put it down, but to keep reading. That's the, that's the challenge. So I, I hope that, you know, it will accomplish that for as many kids as possible. Yes, it's a beautiful vision and intention to have. It fits with you. For some reason, I think I have said that before. You have a very youthful kind of way of speaking and uh, living your life. That come, comes across to me. I never met you in person, but it's there's something about you, the energy that you emanate. <laughs> that's very young. I think I have said that before. So oh, yeah, okay. well, I, <laughs> that's great. I try to capture also, like in the in the way that I wrote it, try to capture his age without, without pandering to to it. Um, and so, what does a twelve year old know, and what do they mentally process? A fourteen year old, a sixteen year old, 
you know, developmentally and cognitively. So you, you have to keep that in mind, whether they're living through a Holocaust or they're just going to the shopping mall, their brains are still only developed to a certain point. So, you know, as an adult, you can read it and you're digesting it, but you realize, oh, wait a minute, he's only digesting it to a certain point or he doesn't know how he can only articulate what he's experiencing as a 14 or 17 year old boy would. So it's, there's a certain uh, distance between what's happening and what he is able to communicate. Um, which I think is kind of cool when you respect that and you honor it and you stay as authentic as possible to that. You're also leaving room for the reader to fill in the blanks in their own mind. So, and then what that indirectly does is that gives the reader ownership or, or an owner's stake in the story. So that they 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 feel like they're they could become invested in it because you don't spell it all out for them 100. percent It's not totally spoon fed for them. Every bit of action, every emotion, everything that's not realistic. So that would be very that would be really, <laughs> that would be sort of a gruesome book to read. Um, just you know, you got to leave kids room to enter into the scene themselves too. I'm really glad you. You saw that, of course. You met him, so you uh, you have an idea. You had a very good idea, but yet you cannot really replace those original feelings and emotions, as you said, that could not be digested. No, no, you try to capture them now, you're really capturing them. Try to capture them in a new narrative that really becomes about the craft. Right. So it's about mm, there's yeah. it's it's a it's um that's what historical fiction is. You need to be, especially this piece of history, absolutely true to the story. Like you don't don't you just don't make shit up. Right. Just, <laughs> right. Don't right. Look for that at all. <laughs> Holocaust. It's really to me that's really wrong. That's a real violation. When I've seen films where I realize that they did it, they embellish something to make a juicier scene or or make it look quote unquote better right, um, right. Me because um the real story what really happened is bad enough you don't need to embellish mm. it just mm. to make you know just to have some pyrotechnics you know to to do some great cinematography with you know that kind of thing to, that that's offensive to the people who really lived it so you know like at the same time though you have to find the balance between making it an engaging read and You know, because during those years, not every day, it wasn't as if every single day something awful happened. There was a lot of, you know, just neutral time, days and hours and hours spent where nothing happened out of the ordinary. You know, he, you know, especially when he was, you know, with a family or something, and he felt they were hidden, and there weren't any soldiers in the in the proximity for days or weeks at a time. It would just be rather ordinary. I mean, looming in the background, yes, there's always a threat that, uh, you know, a small team of German soldiers could just go through the village and, and that that was always happening. But there'd be days on end when it might not. So there was a certain, quote, normalcy. Um, but so then, like, how do you, you know, how do you capture that to make it realistic 
but not have it become dull, our kid's going to be like, well, nothing's happening during these days. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep reading. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Or right. like, you know, there's that, you know, to keep people, you know, I got to keep them hooked, but not, you know, mm-hmm. not uh, impose things that, that feel made up either. That's just, so anyway, so there, it's a, it's an interesting challenge artistically, you know, to, to, to do all that and, you know, be true to the essence of it all. I love that you're able to do that, but then it comes naturally to you. You have highly skilled writer. If that's what you do, have been doing for your entire life. Thanks. I, mean, I hope, I hope so. And like the, the thing that was honestly, that was most gratifying to me yeah. is, is Saul when he read it, he, ah. said, he said, wow. <laughs> he didn't remember all the yeah. book. He didn't remember. Oh, what did I tell my sister? I was thirteen, walking down the street, or well, how are my my mm-hmm. brother, my older brothers teasing me yeah. that one day? And it was that's in the book in certain chapter, and, mm-hmm. and I made it up. I made it up like uh, you know how siblings would be anywhere at any time. Yes, they, they have their own rhythm, <laughs> teasing each other. But he said it feels right. It feels those you you. I felt like like. Mm-hmm. Like Daniel, his older one of his older brothers, I felt like it was Daniel. He, like, he was really right there, yeah. and I thought, "Oh my God!" Then I felt, oof, even saying it out loud now, it's very emotional to me. Yeah, very moving. That was the most important thing to me. That Saul felt locked in. He felt like a, it was captured the right way. Um, so that to me was the most satisfying part of the whole process. Yes, and I can see that because that has to do with trust. So he trusted you to to represent his life story. That's a big deal. Thank you, David, yeah. for being true to him. I didn't know that he had passed on 2011, so I just um, found out. I don't know if I was supposed to say that here, but um, it's okay. The book just came out, right? So you you actually well, have been working for a while on this. It was originally written. It was originally published in. 2000, oh gosh, was it nine or 10? Uh-huh. I and I think it was 10 by the time it came out. And, um, but, uh, when, by the time it was actually literally out for the public and it was mm-hmm. small, well, that by then it was a small Jewish publisher. That publisher had been really big during my childhood. They were a big publisher. They were doing a lot of children's books, a lot of board books and young, mm-hmm. young children, you know, like, whatever Jeremy lights the Hanukkah camp, yeah. <laughs> you know, some you know, little Bernie goes to synagogue. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. And and they, they had a big, it was a big, you know, publishing house. But mm-hmm. over the years, you know, that, that, that dried up and, and then, but they were still around. And so they, they wanted to publish this book, but um, very soon after, coincidentally, I don't know what happened or something just went south in their business model. And, and I think, part of one one of their publishing arms went bankrupt or something like that. And so they, they didn't do very much with the book. And I was so busy with other projects by the time the book came out that I had very little time and resources to, to put into promoting it. And, and, and to be all, and in all honesty, I was, I had some misgivings about how much I more, I wanted to spend my time, in in that world of the Holocaust, because right. it's not easy. Right. You know? Yeah. Can't imagine. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of weight to it, and I 
had, I was raising two children essentially by myself during that time. And anyway, so it just turned out that, um, nothing didn't move where, where it could have. And, and then a few, some years later, I looked back at it. And I was like, geez, I could do this better. I could even just going back in and rewriting some of it and editing it again and sharpening it and just toning, tuning it up a little bit. And I thought, you know what, it really deserves another shot. And I talked to my agent who a new, you know, an agent I had since so it wasn't the agent originally when the book first came out, it was a different agent. And I talked to this, you know, my agent, um, and I said, gee, let's, you know, I could put together a proposal for this. Let's try and see if we can find, get permission to get released from the old publisher and find a new publisher. So we did do that. And it's a publisher, Amsterdam Publishers, which is based in the city of Amsterdam. And they're committed to doing um, a whole library of Holocaust stories. This is the first one they did for young readers. So this was new and it's still to be determined. Um, they seem happy with the sales so far. I don't really... No, I don't spend a whole lot of time, um, you know, tracking all that stuff. But um, there's been a lot of good feedback and it's getting, you know, getting some notice. But I think these things, they they take time. It's not right, like, right. oh, my God, a Holocaust story. We yeah. never we never heard one of those before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, whatever story for young people, it's always up against, you know, the diary of Anne Frank, no matter what. Yes. Yeah. That's, the, that's the imprinted one in everybody's mind. So it's not a competitive thing. It's just a reality. So anyway, um, uh, this time around, what was interesting was the communication I had with Saul's two sons who live in Israel and their interest in what was going to happen to it, that it was being resurrected. So they were pretty happy about that. Um, and um, yeah, so it's a different you know, it's just a different time, a different situation. Um, and, um, you know, like it'll get new notice, you know, in January, uh, January is, um, January 27th is international Holocaust remembrance day. So during those times, there's a lot of attention paid to books like this and others. And so, um, perhaps that'll give it a boost as well. Yes. Yeah. And I'm working, I'm working on um, several different pathways to having the book become part of a teaching curriculum. Oh, that would be wonderful. So, yeah. yeah. We'll see, you know, like in the state where you are in Florida and then in some other states, they're considering the book now using um, that could be one or two school years from now. Those, those things take a long time. Right. There's, there's so much bureaucracy. I know. Is that first step, right? The initiative. So thank you again, David, for making stories like this, not just remembered, but it is the lessons that we learned from it. So and for me, it has been this gratitude for being here now alive and also keeping my life positive and meaningful. That's really the message to me every time I hear stories like this. We talked off record briefly. So I'd like to bring the topic back about uh, luck. I know in a book you mentioned, you gave an interview which you, where you talk a lot about luck, that Sal was lucky in many instances um, in his, um, I have to say, tragedy, yeah, going through what he went through. So what is luck to you and what is the difference between luck 
miracle, I would say, and perhaps destiny? Well, I think that's an eternal question, and it's always a fluid thing to answer because it's so different with every circumstance. If you look at Saul's situation, in an absolute way, one could say, well, he was lucky he survived. But yet, and on the other hand, you go, well, is he really lucky he survived the, and had to live the whole rest of his life with, with knowing his family finally, when he finally found out, took a long time after the war, when he finally found out that every member of his family was murdered. Um, and then you, ha- you have to live with that. And you go on and you do. And he did. And, right, and, and right. You know, he, he had a good, um, healthy, stable marriage for, for decades. And he had two good you know, stable children and grandchildren and, and all of that. And so he, he managed, he didn't fall apart. Um, he managed to, um, do a job. He had a relatively, you know, not a high, high level job. He was very middle-class, wasn't a wealthy guy, but he had a roof over his head. They had food on the table. Um, and, uh, you know, had a generally secure life and, um, you know, you have to have a certain stability in order to do that. We take mm, it for granted yeah. because we see so many people do it, but you got to be, you know, relatively stable. Mm-hmm, so true. Get up to work every day and yes. <laughs> not, you know, not, uh, not shoot anybody or kill anybody or get yourself killed or, or, or get sick or, or right. other things. I mean, so, you know, he, he did survive. He did more than survive, you know, and mm. you say he did thrive. He had a, like I said, he had a good marriage and two two good children. That's thriving. Um, you see so many people who who don't, um, uh, who survived a lot less than the Holocaust. Yeah, but they can't can't make it. they can't make it. Um, so I don't know luck. And then if you break it down, like during the five years of the war, he had good luck and bad luck. You know, like there were moments where, oh my God, I can't hide here. I realized like an hour later, I, this is not a good hiding place. I got, I got a scram before I get caught and, and, and dragged away. And this time they're not going to put me in the crash. This time I'm a year or two older. This time they're going to put me as they're going to treat me as an adult and send me to the concentration camp. And, and, um, and, you know, then there's when he's with one family and he's got, you know, he, he meets a girl, the daughter, who lives, yeah, yeah. has a relationship with her, and he's up, and it's sort of a coming of age. The chapters are sort of a, almost a little coming of age story within a story. Um, but I intentionally, well, two things. He wasn't terribly forthcoming about that. I think it was embarrassing to him. And I remember teasing him. I said, Come on, Saul, you're a boy like any other, you know, boy. You had boy things and boy interests yeah. <laughs> you, you know you whether there was a holocaust or not you still had it you still had testosterone blowing up inside your body so you know like that's all real no and he laughed and he's yeah like, i don't want to like you know i don't even he said honestly i don't remember too many details of it so i but like he did say like that was another thing he said you really didn't he captured the innocence and the essence of it it was a very innocent time this was also the 1940s it was different you know than than now you know (laughs) so um you know attraction is attraction at any age no matter what what decade or what what century you're living in but still it's it was a definitely much a more 
innocent, reserved, you know, time and family was somewhat religious too. So, um, but I think they shared something. You said, you talked before about the word beautiful. There was a beauty in their relationship that the two of them had. It was so young and so fraught with what was going on historically right around them. And there was day-to-day fear, but there was something so lovely. They found a trust in each other um, that that neither one of them could have had otherwise. So and I think that probably that was a gift in a way for both of them. Saul didn't talk about it too much. I, and I, you know, certain things I would kind of push him on for more information and other things I would just not because you could tell he either didn't remember or he didn't want to go there because it was bringing up some delicate feelings and there's parts of him that were still fragile and I had to honor that and, you know, try and make it stay comfortable for him. He knew the process of reliving some of this with me was going to be uncomfortable. I was very open with him about that to make sure he was okay. And he, and he was, you know, for the most part, he didn't shy away too much. That's another part of the story <laughs> where you come in. It's, uh, it's almost like a therapist. <laughs> that story within a story. I mean, yeah. Teenage mm-hmm. boy coming of age. And, and, and then the, you know, the, 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 the family who's, who's keeping him safe it, it, there's a daughter his age and she's pretty and and fun and and you know she has her own feelings and and there aren't any other boys in in the village that she likes and then Saul's there and it's like oh my god I got one here right under the same roof you know and and so again you know you don't tell everything you leave it in the you leave it to the imagination of the people reading too let them fill it in with their own notions of what that relationship could have been. I know you mentioned before off record, and I also uh, heard you saying about the bitterness earlier you mentioned. It's a lot of the Holocaust survivors, they don't become bitter, or the ones oh. that I'm aware of. So why do you think that is after going through what they went through? I... That's a good question, and it's a. I don't know that there's an any absolute answer. I think, I think there has to be. As much as there's survivors' guilt, there's also survivors' gratitude, and they, they don't. They live together in the same brain and the same heart. They're, they're not mutually independent of each other. You, know, you can feel different ways at different times, but they coexist within the same person. Um, and I think one balances the other, perhaps, uh, depending on the personality of the person. It also, you can't group together everyone's Holocaust experience. For example, Saul's experience was very different than someone who was in a camp. And then, and then in different, just break down with the different experiences people had in camps. How long were they there? Which camp were they in? And, and, and who were the commandants of that camp, depending on how severe they were? Were they there literally alone? Were there family members or people from their village or town or city that were also there with them? What, what happened? I mean, there's so many variables, uh, you know, involved. And um, so, you know, I think that that has something to do with 
whether people are bitter. And I think other things, it's almost like it's just pure chance and genetics. You know, some people, mm, yeah. they're born pissed off. Mm-hmm, yeah. And there might be a, I don't know. I, you know, like, you, oh, my God, <laughs> cranky baby. And then that cranky baby is still cranky adult and they and they and they and they live like that and they're just they just born on the wrong side of the bed and they wake up the same way every day and yeah. other people are just more carefree and they're happy-go-lucky and they don't let they just don't let shit shit get to them they're just happy people and and happy people can go through terrible things sometimes it breaks them and they won't be happy any longer and sometimes they're happy and good-natured in spite of anything you could hold a gun to their head for three weeks in a row and they'll still be able to come out of it smiling i mean or, or you know that may not be perfect example but um, <laughs> you know it's it there's so many variables that i don't know if there's any way to really understand it fully i think we have to give just like i don't know what it's like to ever be thank god i don't know what it's like to be physically abused on an ongoing basis by anyone or have the threat of it people who do i can empathize and i can offer support but i can't really understand and if i pretend to that's really why why would i pretend to to know something i just can't um so I think there's certain parts of the Holocaust experience that we can never really understand. Um, and But we have to find some human connection to it. We sort of, I feel personally like we owe, we owe it to our own humanity to make an effort. And some of the effort is just reading the books get educated. One of the biggest problems in the world, honestly, is just pure ignorance. Bad things happen happen essentially because of ignorance, whether willful ignorance or just circumstantial. But, you know, there's a lot of hatred and abuse in the world, and a good deal of it is caused by ignorance. Mm, Wow. Or it's the result of ignorance. Right. I think we talked off record again about the unthinkable things like this, the Holocaust and so many other atrocities that happen that we might kind of classify as unthinkable. But you said clearly, too, in the way you say it, it's thinkable. The unthinkable must be made thinkable. Mm, right. It can't, it can't just become it by itself. We need to take action to make it thinkable. So part of make for me part of making it thinkable was putting in the effort and care to write this book now, and then trying to bring it to more people. So that's a actionable thing to make Saul's story thinkable, but he's symbolic of so many others, millions of others. He's an, you know, yeah, he's one of many. So, you can't just write something off and go, oh, my God, that's unthinkable. Well, what, do you want you want me to give you a cookie? <laughs> yeah. Think it's unthinkable? Or are you going <laughs> to really take time, think about it, and, and maybe do something about it in any tiny, small way? Um, so, um, and that has to be, I think that moves then to the realm of education. 
there's a lot, there's concrete stuff that can be done um, with that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's something that uh, I do a lot of uh, spiritual studies and I always try to make it thinkable, <laughs> make it logical somehow. And um, I wanted to grasp with the intellect. Well, yeah, you have to make something accessible. So, for example, if you if a book started and you go, oh, my God, it was the worst. It was so bad. It was terrible. Oh, my God, it was so terrible. And then people don't even know what you're talking about. Right. It's just overwhelming. It's all emotion, all <laughs> yes. negative. And it's all like it's all like the most it's all awful, awful, awful. Well, there's no there. See, then there's no doorway open. Mm, right, David. Yes. Oh, so again, come back. Yes. To there's no door yes. for a reader in this case, a reader or a viewer or to enter in and say, tell me the story. I want to be, I want to be in it. I want to know it. Um, uh, so, you know, that's what, that's what has to happen. I think, so you have the emotion of it. You have the debt to history, the responsibility to retell history accurately. But then at the same time, artistically, you need to make it engaging because you know, otherwise it's just going to be another book sitting on the shelf and nobody cares. See that metaphor of the door. Uh, yeah, that's probably what I saw. I can't explain, but there's something about that word, right? The boy behind the door. And then what you said now, so the door representing the end, I mean, representing knowledge. If I open that door with knowledge, then it's the end of ignorance. Yeah, it's the entryway into finding out. It's the entryway, so it's it, it invites curiosity. That's what doors do. They invite curiosity. Sometimes we should just leave mm -hmm. them and don't. Yeah. Be too, but <laughs> yeah. every once in a while. But generally speaking, those those are those are you know when you walk down the hallway of a school and a teacher left their door open. Oh my God! It's a powerful invitation just to like just eavesdrop and, and listen to children being who they are and listen to how the teachers introducing a subject matter or how they're all engaged in an activity. Oh my God, that's like, there's so much life inside that class, inside any, you know, any classroom, good school, bad school, there's still life inside every classroom. And so, and there's an opportunity. Oh, sorry. I'll have to, I'll call back. Um, sorry about that. Um, there's, there's, um, there's an opportunity. So that's what doors are also. They're, they're, you know, they rep, they symbolize, they represent opportunities. But in this case, you know, when you see the image of the boy, of that one little hand in front, you don't see his face, you don't see his body. It's just one little hand that has a certain power too, because, and when we were working, when we were doing the cover, I said, please let's strip it down to the bare minimum because there's, I think it's even more powerful. The less we see, more power goes into our imagination. Um, and, and then it's also curious, like what, what, what's connected to that hand? Who is it? Right, right. And that's, see, the curiosity, yeah, it's the door to knowledge that could yeah, end ignorance, right? Right. And without, the absence of curiosity is, you know, is, is like, it's like synonymous with the end of our existence. Yes. You know, not being right. And like, forget it. You might as well just <laughs> as well check out. You know, there's no point. Yeah, I agree. I love the way you get involved, you know, with these, um, the themes, everything you do. We have talked before about 
healing through writing and then <laughs> cancer and all that. I really love the human that you are, you know, making this connection. The life is not just about the craft of writing, but it's beautiful. It's an art too. Of course, you're curious. That's why you are who you are. That craft to meaning, you're giving this powerful meaning to writing. So I really appreciate that, David, deeply. I have deep appreciation for that, which is very healing to me. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear you having that experience with it. And I, and thank you for that acknowledgement. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't, you know, yeah, it's willful. It's, it's, it's very, it's an intention. It's intention. Right, I right. do it with intention. And some of it is also, maybe there's also a little bit of luck in there. <laughs> luck. Oh, yeah. sometimes I mean, you, can take, <laughs> yeah. you, can take 10, you can take 10 writers and have mm-hmm. them write the same story and different ones, they have different ears. They hear, they hear, like, you know, they hear life differently. So it'll reflect differently in their writing or they pay attention to some, you know, are right on the surface and others allow for more room in the subtext. So, you know, there's such a variety there when it comes to the crafting um, of it. Um, yeah. Right. But it's beautiful. So we're almost at the end. I want to thank you again for your presence in our reality, in this world we live in with all the the confusion. And then here you are <laughs> uh, bringing some clarity and curiosity and deep knowledge. So thank you for that. Did you leave anything unsaid for today? Would you like to read a passage in The Boy Behind the Door? Well, you know, you had a great one. In, in what you did by reading um, the last quote. And I wanted to say that, you know, Sandy, uh, I'm not Sandy, Saul, Saul's quote at the end there, let me just get it in front of me. His quote at the end, um, it comes from um, a documentary. Ah, yes, uh, right. That I, would, that I would recommend to your listeners. And it's called, um, uh, it was a 2005 documentary called Secret Courage, the Walter Suskin story. And it described the work that Walter did in helping so many children and babies like like Saul and, and like and babies. Because Saul, he even told me he's, uh, he remembers so vividly like these bundles, nurses handing bundles over the wall to other people that he didn't know and what they were doing was they were, they were getting babies out of there um, and, and being sent into families who would look after them because their parents had been taken away to the concentration camps and they weren't coming back. And those babies eventually uh, the ones that were still left, you know, um, as the war went on, they, they all, they got, they ended up getting killed too. So, you know, they, they got these nurses, at great risk to themselves and the and the um, non-Jewish families in Amsterdam who took them in, um, and they became orphans of the Holocaust. And so his comment and this quote, you will come over it, but you never forget it. You live with it, and you go dying with it, and you never forget. And that the word in Hebrew is zahor, meaning to remember, zahor. And this is very important word I learned when I was a child and um, I didn't really understand the full meaning of it until I got older but um, we have an obligation to not forget and through that forgetting 
we affirm our humanity. Mm. When we stop doing that, we're done. And we see in our society, there are a lot of people who choose to willfully ignore and willfully even deny that it happened. And, and that's the root of great evil. And um, it's, the, it's the cause of great, great harm. So we, we need to combat that. One thing that you said that was like, gave me chills is uh, the babies. So some of them were killed, actually. And oh, yeah. I'm thinking to myself here, what kind of belief system and think, kind of thinking one might have to, to do such a thing? I mean, I cannot even conceive that idea. Well, good. Of thinking good. that way. I think that's, our, that's, that's, a, that's a slice of our own redemption is, you know, even... Look, as a storyteller, and, and, and I, you know, I worked in, in theater and with books for so many years, it's my obligation or, it's, or my, my job or my passion to let my imagination go wild and, and et cetera, et cetera, and be very open and free with it. But at the same time, there's certain things that you just can't imagine. Right. Like I can't yeah. fathom putting a gun to somebody's head and pulling the trigger. But yet people do it every single day with no compunction, with no hesitation. They, they murder freely. It happens everywhere in, in, in the world. Um, and that is just on a one-to-one -one basis. But, you know, Hitler and the Nazis managed to do it at a scale that no one could ever fathom. And, and so there is an element of disbelief because it's so large. It's so large. It's, 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 You know, it's it it is un, it's all in a way it's unfathomable. Yet we have to force ourselves to fathom it. That's our that's that's again the obligation of real humanity. We must we we, we must, and if we don't, that's that's dangerous. So right. um, it's harmful. So we you know in the trying to do less harm, we have to work a little harder. <laughs> yeah, what comes to me is the ignorance again, isn't right. it? Right, it has to be. No, yeah. It is. It is it boils down to ignorance, um, especially willful ignorance. When you choose to be ignorant, you know it's one thing to be in denial about certain stuff because it's you can't only take it in in doses. And I, I honor that and I respect it. That's why, in a way, that's one of the things in this book. It's like when you have small chapters, you're taking in bad things that's happening to Saul and his family, but in small, quick doses easier to follow it's easier to it makes it digestible and and then it, it, it makes it doable to 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 have a full reading experience with it um but people who choose to ignore you know people who people who deny the holocaust they don't do it because they're going like, oh no i it's that's just so bad i can't believe that ever happened Oh, no, it couldn't have happened. I don't believe it. That's not that. That's just anecdotal foolishness. That's not so dangerous because people then then they can be guided. But when people choose to deny for a different agenda. Mm, yeah. That that's that's yes, that's seriously dangerous. That's adopting uh, belief systems that's not theirs even. That's what it seems to me, too, which is, of course, is ignorance of self. Well, for example, in, in certain countries, like in Germany, if you if you say that out loud, you could be prosecuted. Wow. 
There is not the same right of First Amendment right of free speech regarding the Holocaust in Germany as there is here. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I don't know all the details of the law and what's what's prosecutable and what isn't. But I do know that you, you it's not like you, you know, you like. I guess you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater in the United States, but you can get pretty damn close to it, right? Um, or if you yell fire, but it has a nice ring to it, it's got a little musical accompaniment, you might get away with it. But in Germany, like you can't, like there, uh uh-uh, like you can't. You just, there's, there's, there's parameters around it. There's, there's things that have, there's laws that restrict the free speech when it comes to the Holocaust doesn't eliminate it it doesn't say you can't say you can't discuss the holocaust in public of course not but 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 um as far as like denialism and things like that um and and all and and the other things that come out from from that whole tribe of people um that's significantly forbidden makes me think about freedom as a whole what is your idea of freedom these days jeez well, I kind of agree with that law. I do think that, you know what, when people deny the Holocaust, um, they ought to be prosecuted. And the, But instead of putting them in prison, they ought to put them in school and educate them. You know, uh, it's, like the, it's like the scene in Clockwork Orange where, uh, what's his name, um, they, they tie him into a, into a chair and, they, and they, they bolt him into a chair and they hold his eyelids open so he has to see <laughs> The, the film of the Holocaust and, and because he's been, he's been a denier. And, and so I kind of believe in that. Yeah. Like, like, you know, both, both those people into a chair and force their eyelids open and make them, make them get it. And, 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 you know, that's, it's not about punishment. It's about education. And sometimes you got to force it down people's throats. I know that sounds a little violent. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Life isn't all a pretty bunch of roses. You know? hmm. Um, and if people are, it can't, if people can't, don't accept the invitation to learn, then maybe it just needs to be forced upon them. I do not subscribe to violence, but this doesn't sound like violent, although um, it might be. But it is. Consider it violent. You know, if I strap you to a chair and force your eyelids open, there is a certain violence to right, it. Right, right, that's, right. That's the extent. The rest of the violence is 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 trying to make entry into your thick skull mm. that might that's a, there's a certain violence of ideas there yes but then the bullying has to be countered with bullying like, like all we say if a bully, mm-hmm. if a bully's out on the playground and he's bothering you and that one kid turns around and just punches him in the nose lots of times that kid just stops bullying because somebody stood up to him so for every holocaust denier you got to stand right up to him and say you're full of shit and here's why and I'm going to educate you. Yeah, that's an interesting invitation that I never thought about, it, David. <laughs> it just, um, yeah, you kind of opened my eyes for that. <laughs> I'm always very much into the uh, nonviolent everything. Education to me, it's, um, yeah, it has to go beyond that, even my own understanding, right? It's not really necessarily about violence. It's 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 actionable. Yes, right. To right. be, hey, are you crazy? You're denying the Holocaust. It's just, that's nothing. That doesn't do anything. That, that's, that's not actionable. There has to be some way to do it. And I think that, I mean, it's not going to ever happen in our country. Um, it just won't. But that, that, that 
all of that language and that rhetoric is forbidden or is prosecuted, um, or at least some of it is to a certain degree, that's not going to happen because, uh, you know, just the same way, like no one's ever going to touch the Second Amendment in our lifetime. No one's ever going to touch the first one either. Um, so those are sacred. And, and for the most part, they should be. But there are <laughs> this is one exception that I do believe I would to see legislated. I would love to see like, you know, Holocaust denial is against the law. Like it just is. You know, you want to do it in the privacy of your own living room? Can't touch that. We're not going to send the police in to check everybody's house, what they're talking about. But if you go out in public with a megaphone and you march down the street carrying tiki torches and shouting Jews will not replace us, boom, you're in jail. You're in jail and you are in, uh, and, and that jail should be what they used to call reform school. And that's where you're going to really learn every day. You're going to learn about the Holocaust. And when you, when you have learned enough, we'll let you go back to your normal life. Yes. That sounds good to me in the school so they can learn about it. Yeah. It's just education being, it's needed. That's what we talked earlier about uh, the antidote of ignorance is knowledge. So, yeah, exactly. um, got so it. I mean, that's why, that's why the prison, you know, prison systems that do well are the ones that are, that rehabilitate yeah, and that educate and offer schooling that offer mental health support and all those other things. The things, the prisons that are purely punitive, Uh, they don't do anything. Makes them worse, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're much worse. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. The rate, of, the rate of return is so high for those. Yes. You know? Yeah. So th that's what we need. I absolutely agree. Although, like you said, we can't force people if they're um, holding that deny within their own homes and their own minds and they're not exposed in that ignorance then it's nothing can be done about it because they're not causing, let's say, massive harm. But then it's different. Once you go yeah. public, once you go public, no, 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 not okay. Um, that's, that's what I'm, I'd love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting idea. And <laughs> I never thought about it. So before I say goodbye to you, I must ask this question. If there was one message, if there is just one message in the book that you wish everyone to carry with, with them for the rest of their lives, what would that be? I think we've touched on all of them as a question of, well, hope. I mean, there's all hope. It's a powerful thing. And, it, you know, it's like can't be overstated or overrated. I mean, it might be we might talk about it maybe too much or it's thrown around. It's thrown around, you know, like a like a like a nice little Frisbee, but yeah. Yeah. it's got a lot of power and it's what saves people. Yes. They're dealing with a cancer diagnosis or they're in a, in a, in an abusive relationship or they're surviving the Holocaust. Mm. Mm. Hope, um, you know, yeah. hope, hope really is powerful. Hope. That reminds me of the other, the book that we talked to. Is that right for hope? I was, Wonder if you have that word there. Right for life, yeah. For life, right, right, right. Right, but I think that hope needs to become when it can become actionable, when it's not just a head trip or a belief system, when it when it's really becomes actionable, when it can be put into yeah, right. you know, concrete positive movement. Right. Then then it means then it really right. has meaning. That's it. Really it. Do something. It needs to be translated to do something. Thank you again. 
David, for your presence here today, again, uh, for our collaboration, for our healing, meaningful collaboration throughout, I think has been, was three years, two years. So thank you so much for your presence in my life, within the Fit for Joy community and in the world, in what you're doing. I love your presence. It's very uplifting. Thank you so much again. And before we say goodbye for today, what's the best place to find out more about you and your book, The the boy behind the door. Oh, thank you, Valeria. And and I wish you a, a happy and healthy new year. Yes, same to you. Sustenance <laughs> and continued, you know, curiosity and, and all. Um, well, the people could go um, to my website, tabatsky.com, or for this book, it's all one word, theboybehindthedoor.org, O-R-G, theboybehindthedoor.org. And that's, we'll tell you more background on, on this book and some of the history of it, and they can read some of the reviews and the media that's been written, and they, there's links to where they can, can get the book. And so I think that that's probably the, the best kind of one-stop they can go to. Yes, I'll have both links on your podcast profile. Thank right. you again, David, and we'll talk soon. Bye okay. for now. Okay, well. Bye, Valeria. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about David Tabatsky and his work, please visit tabatsky.com and theboybehindthedoor.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. <laughs>